Well, good morning. It's so good to worship with everyone. And as Dakota had just said, there's something special about us worshiping together as a body of Christ. We can certainly all worship in our own individual settings, and that is worship. However, when we worship together, we're giving God glory that we couldn't give just in and of ourselves. Um, one illustration we learn in the book is what celebration that we, t- we have together if we're the sports game and everybody is just in their own home watching their own sports game as opposed to coming to the stadium and celebrating together. And this is what worship is all about. We're coming together, worshiping Christ, giving our physical presence to the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly this is what we're going to be talking about also here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 10, verse 6. We're going to see Paul's own heart in the race that he's running in order so that Christ may be glorified and people may be brought to him. Through this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to start from verse 24 and we're going to go all the way to chapter 10, verse 6. Let's read this together. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-controlling all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as example for us that we might not desire evil. As they did. It's about in the word prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you together. We get to worship you. We get to exalt you with our words, exalt you with our songs. We now get to exalt you with our hearts as we engage in your word, knowing that your word is a double-edged sword that cuts uh, deeply into our hearts to cause us to, to bow down to you, cause us to worship you, cause us to reflect upon how much we need you in our lives, to live our lives in such a way that pleases you. Lord, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We pray your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us now as we engage your word. Give us a time of wonderful worship now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People spend a lot of money on exercise, only not to do it. I remember I was growing up, I had a treadmill, I had an elliptical, I had a Bowflex. I had all kinds of equipment for exercise. The reason why we bought this equipment is because we thought that we're going to exercise. We understood the importance of getting fit, we understood the importance of maintaining health in our bodies, so we purchased these equipments for the sake of using them. So we use them only for a little while. And if your experience is the same as mine, you purchase this equipment and use them for a couple months. And after a couple months, it kind of just sits there and it's not used at all. You might feel bad to get on top of it once in a while, but after that, it's just junk sitting there in the corner of the room. And then when you move, you don't have space for that particular equipment, so you end up selling that equipment for a lot less than what you purchased it for. This is my experience with exercise equipment. 
Now, you may not have exercise equipment because you might not have bought one before, but certainly you might know what it means to own gym membership. You might have gym membership today. Subscribe to it. And to certain different levels of gym membership, there are levels in which you could use the standard equipment here in the gym. There are levels in which you could go to and access a limited amount of classes in the gym. You can have your personal trainer, etc. And prices goes up. However price that you're paying for, however much you're paying for, the reality is that having gym membership doesn't get you fit either. You have to go to the gym. You have to wake up early in the morning before your work to go to the gym. You have to get to the gym after you come back from work. It's a lot of work. You might want to just go back home and rest, but then you're thinking about your health, so you're going to the gym, exercise, and by the time you get home, it's 6, 7 o'clock at night. It's a lot of discipline. You might even own expensive workout clothing and some of these workout clothing are very expensive because of the technology that's built into them they could wick sweat away from your body you could exercise comfortably in these exercise clothing and they even look good however if you don't exercise you never ever wear them they're just in the closet not being worn so this might be your experience certainly this is many of our experience that what truly causes us to want to exercise what truly causes us to get into the gym is not necessarily something that's external all of us but rather something that is internal your motivation your desire to achieve a certain goal your desire and your passion for that goal to be accomplished in your life that is what is most important your discipline your motivation seeing our relationship with god this is my very much the same God desired for us to be passionate about Him, to do everything for Him, to see Him as the most important thing in our lives, to make sacrifices so that His will will be accomplished. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, God commands us with these words, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Would you do everything for the glory of God, whatever it is that we do in the world? This is God's command to us in the very beginning when we were first created. When we were first created, God called us unto himself, gave us work in the garden to do, all for his glory. However, we, as we know, sinned against God, walked away from him. Instead of glorifying God in our lives, we choose to glorify ourselves. The temptation that Satan gave to us was this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, we would be like God. If we ate of this fruit, we'll be just like God. His power, His wisdom. But you know what? We don't have to be under God's thumb anymore. We don't have to be under God anymore. We don't have to be governed by God. That's the temptation. We can live our lives away from God as if that is better. But the reality is that that is not better but worse. You see, our God's loving God, righteous God, perfect God, who does everything loving for us, but we did not believe in that. We want our own lives. We want to be like God. We want the power of God, the, the, the authority of God. What do we have? What we have in this world is wickedness. Even though humanity has engaged in technological advancement and we can do more things in our phone today than we could do in the past century or thousands of years, but the state of humanity isn't better. It's worse. Hateful words, hateful actions still exist. People start killing each other, broken relationships on bigger scales, Humanity has been destroyed. This is the result of sin. The solution, as God says throughout all Scripture, is to return to Him. 
be in a right relationship with God, and that relationship can only be restored through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus. Jesus. He came. He lived the perfect life which you couldn't live and I couldn't live. He was passionate about God's glory. Everything he did, he did for the Father's will. He did everything for the Father. He lived this perfect life, but then he gave his perfect life to us. That was the Father's will for our salvation. He died on the cross so that we don't have to experience the punishment for our sins. He paid it all for us. And he rose again from the dead to show us that if we die, and we certainly will die in our physical flesh, we will rise again with him. There's eternal life to be lived with Christ in restored relationship. This is the gift of God, the salvation. If you believe you are going to be restored to God, your sins forgiven, your life turned around, you're transforming your own inner being, and now your life is meant for him and him alone. You get to return to the state in which you do things for God's glory as God intended for you to do. Now, when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, and later on, chapter 10, verse 6, what we're going to find out is Paul's calling in his life to do everything for the glory of God. Now, his calling is not that much different from ours. We all have the same calling. The calling is that we would live the life that Jesus lived. Jesus lived this life for the sake of bringing people to God. That's what he did. That was the Father's will in his life. You know what? In our life, that is the same. We're called to bring people to God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to verse 20, we're called to make disciples of all nations. So whatever it is that you do today, you own a secular job, if you work in the ministry, whatever it is that you do, your calling and my calling, all of our callings are the same. We're called to bring people to God. We're called to run this race, a particular race, not for our own ambitions, not so that we could be successful in our own eyes, in the world's eyes, but be successful in God's eyes, which is that we bring people to God. In order for us to run this race, in order for us to do God's will in our lives, we must have two characteristics in our spiritual walks, which we will see here today. The first characteristic which we see here is from verse 24 to verse 27. We must have discipline. We must have discipline in our spiritual walks with God. Let's read this passage, verse 24 to verse 27. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we end imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. As we come to this passage, we're seeing Paul again pour his heart out to the Corinthian church. We've been in this passage for quite a while now, and in this book quite a while now, a few months, and just discussing uh, what is Paul's and God's calling for the Corinthian church. The church really is a church that needs a lot of instructions. church needs a lot of help. You know, a lot of help in a variety of different issues which we saw. Paul has been, through God's Holy Spirit, teaching them on the issue of unity, on the issue of sexuality, on the issue of singleness, on the issue of marriage, on the issue of Christian freedom. He's teaching them on all kinds of things so that the church could be a church that runs hard after the Lord for the glory of God. And as he does so, he lists himself as example. He doesn't like to talk about himself quite a bit in the scripture, but very few times see Paul talking about himself. 
And the reason why he does it is so that he could showcase himself humbly as an example. Sometimes we have to do this to say, I want you to look at my life and the way I serve God's people. I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's telling the Corinthian church the things that he would do to see them grow in Christ. The things, the sacrifice that he would make to see other people grow in Christ and led to Jesus. Namely, he says, I would take no pay. I would not be financially supported by you in order to see you grow in Christ. I'm willing to live the way that you live. He says, to the Jews, I would live as a Jew. To the Gentiles, I would live as a Gentile. To those who are weak, I would live as, they, as I'm a weak person in terms of my faith and in, in terms of what I would allow in my life, what I wouldn't allow in my life. I would just accommodate to your presence, accommodate to your preference in order so that I may have a relationship with you, in order that we may be friends, so that I may engage you and speak to you and disciple you to help you grow in the Lord. That is Paul's desire. He desires in his own life, as 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, to do all things for the sake of the gospel so that he may share with them in its blessings. He wants to share with them, everybody he encounters, the blessings of the gospel. He wants them to be saved. He wants as many people to be saved by his ministry as possible. In this very sense, he's a servant. He's a servant of all. He's not serving in the sense of just, you know what, I'm going to accommodate to your wants. I'm going to accommodate to your needs. No, he has a specific service. He's not just serving to make other people's lives comfortable. He's serving so that people may be brought back to God. This is Jesus' heart as well in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 to 27, where Jesus said, Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life so that people can be brought back to God through the gospel. That is why he came. He came and gave his life on the cross. He came and gave his life to us, his perfect righteousness to us as a servant so that we may be brought back to God. And Paul had a calling, as we all had a calling. Now Paul is the one who is taking that message to the ends of the world. And he said he's running a race. He's purposeful in his life. He's not beating in the air. He's not running aimlessly. He's purposeful. So verse 24, he says this sports illustration, or gives a sports illustration. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. It's given an illustration to show how hard that he works in his life to see other people come to know the Lord. Because illustration of sports, illustration of the race. Now, racing is something that people watch all the time back in the days of Corinth. In fact, Alexander the Great is the one that made famous of these uh, sports. He's the one who brought forth Olympics, competition sports. Now, competition sports is something that Paul loved. In fact, throughout his scripture, throughout the writings of his letters, he constantly mentions competition sports as an illustration to his walk with the Lord. For example, Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Hold fast to the word of life so that the day of the Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Illustration running here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race, I kept the faith, the illustration of fighting, boxing, illustration of running. Corinthian church would have understood this because they're in Corinth. Corinth is a place where the Isthmian Games are offered. Isthmian Games is something that's like the Olympics, except it's offered a year before the Olympics and a year after the Olympics. And people have to exercise, work hard to be a part of this competition. So all the runners are running, but 
only one receives the prize. So they're running for the sake of that prize. Now, there's some point in which this illustration breaks down for Christian living because we've all run. If we're faithful to God, we will all receive the prize. However, Paul himself is giving this illustration for the sake of illustrating the emotion that's behind his life. He's running, he's agonizing, exercising, making sure that he actually accomplished the goal which he set for himself to do. He wants to make sure that he gets to where he desires to. And that desire is not something that belongs to him alone. That calling is not something that belongs to him alone, but belongs to all of us. He's not just saying, I run the race. You guys watch me run the race. As I seek to accomplish this apostleship for the sake of Jesus. He's not saying that. In verse 24, he commands the Corinthian church to do this. So you run. Run that you may obtain it. You also have to run as I am running. This particular call to seek hard after the Lord, to run hard after the Lord, to make your life to, in such a way that you have self-control and to be disciplined is not something that pastors, apostles, or ministers do, but all of us are to do it and for the sake of bring other people to Jesus. We're all to run so that we may obtain the calling, the prize, or after accomplish the calling, obtain the prize which God has called us to obtain. In this very calling, Paul says, this is my discipline. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That is true. If you want to exercise, if, I mean, if you want to win, you will exercise. If you want to win, you will not eat that chocolate bar, right? You will just say, you know what? I'm not going to eat chocolate. I'm not going to eat that ice cream. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do that. But instead, I'm going to wake up 5 in the morning. I'm going to go run. I'm going to time myself. I'm going to try to beat my own time. I'm going to exercise self-control in all things so that I may win. And the earthly winning is this. The earthly winning in those Isthmian games is to win, as verse 25 says, an, a, a perishable wreath. A perishable wreath. A wreath that will fade away. And the wreath back in those days are not what we see in our days. Perhaps if you win Olympics, what you would have is a medal. And you, the medal you could keep, a trophy that's made of metal, you could keep that. But what, back in those days, what they have is a wreath. If you win, you get to have this wreath. The wreath is made of tree branches, twigs. So after a while, you can't really show people that anymore because it kind of biodegraded. And back in those days, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have internet, they didn't have social media to showcase that people uh, would know that, to showcase to people that you won. So people don't really know that you're the champion of the Isthmian Games of whatever year. They wouldn't know unless you present to them this wreath. And the reality is that after a few months, that wreath is not going to look like a wreath anymore. So you can't even prove to the other people that you actually truly won the game at all after a few years. But they work hard still. They work hard still for a perishable wreath to accomplish that goal. How much more, Paul says, should we not run our race to achieve an imperishable wreath, to receive a wreath that will not fade away? So Paul is saying everywhere in Scripture, you'll receive a crown that will not fade away. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53 for this perishable body should put on the imperishable, as mortal body must put on immortality. Everything that which we have here that's perishable will be replaced with something that's imperishable. And the reality is that what you will receive in heaven has a lot to do with what you give here on earth. That's why Jesus says, do not store your treasure here on earth, but store them in heaven where the rust will not attack it, where the moth will not eat of it, where thieves will not steal it. Everything you hear on earth, you have here on earth, is perishable. Unless you use it for the glory of God, then it would be turned into something that's imperishable. 
So live your life in such a way to achieve what is imperishable, to receive something that is imperishable, the glory of God, the reward of God, which will be given to you on that day. In this very sense, Paul says, this is what I do. I know the calling of God in my life. I know that God's called me to share the gospel. I know God's called me to tell people about Jesus. I know that God's called me to bring people to the fold, those who are unchurched, to bring them to a church where they will be shepherded and fed the word of God. So what he does is this, verse 26, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not running all around the track. I'm not running backward and to the side. I'm running toward the goal, toward the finish line. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm, I'm, I want my fists to land, land on my enemy, land on Satan. I want to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of beloved son. So what he does is this, every time he goes to the city, he goes to the synagogue, and he has a specific method. He goes and makes debates with the Jewish people, gets all Jewish people all angry, all riled up, but some people will believe. So the people who does believe, he brings to another location in the city and starts a church. And it works. People become saved through Paul's effort. Everything he does is for a purpose. He's willing to do so at great cost to himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, 27, he says that he's on frequent journeys. He's in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from our own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and exposure. He's not passive about it. He's not wondering, like, you know what? I don't know why am I going through all this. It just kind of happened to me. I'm just passively suffering. No, he actually knows what he's going through, right? He didn't have to go through this process unless he's going to that city in which he's going to share the gospel. So every suffering he goes through, he knows exactly why he's going through it. It's because he's purposefully going to that city to tell people about Jesus. He's purposeful. He's not one that would come back home and just let his body tell him what to do. Oh, you want to eat the ice cream? Go eat the ice cream. You want to watch that TV? Go watch that TV. You want to watch that movie that has inappropriate scenes? Go watch that. He's not one to go to work and just says, you know what, I'm just going to do the minimum what my boss tells me to do. He has a thought. He's going to work hard. He has an aim. He's going to achieve. He's going to be the most excellent in whatever that he does. He's going to tell his body what to do. That's what he said in verse 27. I discipline my body and keep it under control. The word discipline literally means to give my body a black eye. I'm going to punch my body. I'm going to tell my body what to do. I'm, going to let, I'm not going to let my body tell me what to do because I know what is God's will in my life. I'm going to make sure that it's done. I'm going to keep it under control. And the reason why is this, and this is his warning to himself. We already saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, where he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. His warning again to himself is this, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If I don't run as hard as I can, if I don't do God's will in my life, if I'm living my life for my own purposes, for my own glory, for my own comfort, I may be disqualified in my life. It's a serious word. And many people, many theologians have argued over what this word actually means. What does it mean to be disqualified? It's a serious word. Some of the translations, even the King James translation, translates as a castaway. Other translations translate as a disproved, rejected, reprobate. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8, it says this concerning those who are apostates, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to be cursed, it's end to be burned. The word worthless is this word disqualified. It's a serious word. So people say, what, what, how can it be, be, be such seriousness? How can you consider 
your own perhaps salvation at stake because you have not done God's will in your life. It's actually not a far-stretched thought because everywhere in Scripture, our state of salvation is highly connected to our willingness to do God's will. If you're saved, you will do God's will at all costs to your life because as you think about it, you might fail at times, but you as a believer will pray about it and come back to it. You will say, you know what? This is God's will. I will submit to it. James chapter 2, verse 18 says this clearly. If someone says you have faith and have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. True faith has works. Your work is that you will do the will of the Father in your life. That's what Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody says, Lord, Lord, I believe unto you. Right? There's many people, he eventually says, in that day someone would say to me, or many would say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we do many works? We, we did many works in your name. And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And many people come to church and say, you know, I cast out demons, perform signs, I do all these things. But Jesus says you do not have a true heart of my will in your life. You are workers of lawlessness. You have not told people about me. You have not gone to the difficult areas and shared the gospel. All your life is composed of just cultural Christianity. Are there cultural Christians in America? Yes. Not so much here, perhaps in California, but many parts of the world, in the southern part of, the California, southern part of the United States. Who isn't a Christian? There's a church around every corner. Are they all saved? Probably not. Only those who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, only those who run hard after Jesus, as Paul does, as we are called to do. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. We do. We do sin. We do fail at times. Peter himself failed. Think about Peter's story. He was recognized by the servants in Matthew chapter 26, and he denied Christ three times, right? Three times denied Jesus. It's a horrible experience for Peter, but that wasn't him. He really desired to serve God. He just had a momentary failure. So what God did to him is this. What Jesus said to him in John chapter 21, verse 17, is to restate him to ministry. Jesus said to him, do you love me more than these? And Peter's answer is, Lord, I failed, but you know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I truly do love you. I'm not perfect, but I do. And Jesus recommissioned him in John chapter 21, verse 18 through 19 again, Verses after that, truly, truly, I say to you, when you are young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hand, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, what? Follow me. This is what it means to follow him. Glorify God by the manner of death in which you will endure. Didn't have an opportunity that first time, you get a second chance. <laughs> That's what God is saying to Peter. It's a great sacrifice, and Peter did it. He truly loved the Lord before all things in this world. And this is compared with another man, Demas. Remember Demas? Demas saying in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Actually, also in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, when he's first introduced by Paul as a co-worker. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow workers. Now, Demas is a co-worker of, of Paul, his missionary journey. But by the time that Paul entered into second imprisonment, 
In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted. Paul has gone to Thessalonica. The word deserted meant that he has abandoned Paul in the most needy moment of Paul's life. Remember, 2 Timothy is a time where Nero's coming to power. Christians are becoming more and more persecuted. Paul is in prison. Many Christians are suffering. And Demas here, even though he was happy to serve alongside Paul in the previous comfortable years, now when the years are getting harder, he's running away. Why? Because he loved the world. He is not willing to follow God when the trials come, when the difficulties come. So Paul said this concerning himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Regarding his own life, he says, No, I do everything because I love the Lord. Henceforth is laid up for me crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but also to what? All who have loved his appearing. If you love God, you will stick around, even though when it's hard. And when you do, you'll be receiving the crown of righteousness. And those who do not love God, the love of the Father is not in him. First John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That would describe Demas. See, the road to salvation is not a wide one. It's a narrow one. It's not just the easy believism, I'm going to confess and I'm in heaven. It's a matter of willing to follow Jesus at all cost. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus said, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are many. Right? No, are few. Are few. And he gives illustration in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 to 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It gives the illustration of carrying the cross. Remember, Jesus had not gone to the cross yet. It's not giving a preview. He's giving an actual perspective of what it means. See, back in the days of Jesus, there were about 2,000 Jews crucified at one time by the Roman Empire, led under, that is, the, the rebellion led by Judas of Galilee. The singing Acts, book of Acts as well. Jesus Galilee led this failed rebellion that led 2,000 Jews to be crucified in Galilee all along the roads of Galilee. So Jesus literally was teaching his lesson. He literally pointed to a cross. Just a few days ago, someone's crucified on that and said, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to be like that guy to follow me. It's a high cost. It requires discipline. It requires forethought. That's what Paul says. I don't just joke around. I don't joke around my Christian living. I exercise. I get ready. Some of us are talking about the persecution is coming. Some of us are talking about the world getting harder. Some are talking about Antichrist coming. All this stuff, right? We talk about the book of Revelation. Are you ready in your life? It's not just a theological practice, a theological stimulation in studying the book of Revelation. It's to get you ready for that day. Exercise your spiritual walk. Be disciplined. So here we see the first characteristic you and I need to have is discipline if you want to run hard after God. The second characteristic is this. You must have self-assessment, proper self-assessment. Chapter 10, verse 6, or 1 through 6, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, 
all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, but they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul here lists examples. I'm giving you one illustration after the other. So first I give you a sports illustration. Now I'll give you an Old Testament illustration. The Old Testament illustration is this. Look at the Jews. Look at the Jews. They were all under the, house, uh, under the cloud. All passed through the sea. They were all Israelites. All called God's people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they all were saved. They were all in the local church, so we could say, right? You come to a church, but not everybody in the church has a relationship with God. The call is to self-examine. So first of all, it says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Our Father, we're all under the cloud. What kind of cloud is this? Now, we're all under some kind of cloud today. This is not any kind of cloud. This is the special cloud of God, the Shekinah glory cloud, the cloud of God's presence. We see this cloud in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way at night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. This is a pillar of cloud in which God's presence is there for protection, for guidance. God's cloud is over them. If you're under this cloud, as you're coming out of Egypt, you are people of God. Not only are you under the cloud, you also must pass through the sea. Remember that story of Pharaoh chasing after them? So you have the ten plagues. Pharaoh says, you know what? You guys can go. I'm tired of this. But then he changed his mind. says, no, I'm going to get the Israelites back. So I'm going to chase after them. I'm going to get them back. So they're at the Red Sea. They had two choices. And the choice is to go back to Pharaoh, right? It's like the army is coming after them. Saying, you know what, Moses, why'd you let us out here? Right? Actually, they did say that. I'm just going to go back to Pharaoh. Let's go back to Pharaoh before they kill us. Surrender. Otherwise, I'm going to slaughter us all. That's the temptation. But Moses said, don't. Don't do that. I'm going to give you something. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, in which will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. So wait, wait. God will fight for you. So what happened? Exodus chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong wind, east wind, all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. People of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, waters being a wall to them on the right hand on their left. So God made the sea part. Took a whole night, took some waiting. But for those who waited, didn't go back, right? Didn't go surrender to the Egyptians. They walked through dry ground. Got to the other side of the Red Sea. And when God got to the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army chases after them. God made the waters come back and destroy all the Pharaoh's armies. Everyone who arrived on the other side of the Red Sea are called who? Israelites. If you did not arrive, if you stayed in Egypt in the very beginning when Moses said, let's go, you said, you know what? I got a business. I got to take care of you in Egypt. The Egyptians are nice to me. You're no longer Israelite. You're Egyptian. You assimilate to their culture. You're done. If you went back during the time where they're chasing after you, you said, I'm going to escape the camp of the Egypt, uh, Israelites. I'm going to go back to the Egyptians to render them. You're done. You're done. But the fact that you're under the cloud, you went through the sea, you got to the other side, now you are a covenant people of God. That's who you are. You got to the other side. So you are, as Paul said in verse 2, baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea. You're baptized into Moses. You're baptized into what Moses had presented 
God to be. You're baptized under the law, which is presented by Moses. And what baptism is a word that symbols identification. It's very much the way that we use baptism today. Does not necessarily mean that every single Israelite was saved. But they were identifying with salvation. They were identifying with God, identifying with Yahweh, identifying with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like you getting baptized. Does baptism save you? No. Water baptism does not save you. Can an unbeliever get baptized? For sure. I've seen many unbelievers got baptized and eventually said they don't believe in God anymore. But at the moment, at the moment, it felt like they were. They were identifying with God, identifying with God's people, identifying with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved. So they all had this identification with Moses, with God, by passing through the cloud, passing through the sea, being under God's protection. And they all had the benefactor benefiting them. God himself gave spiritual food and spiritual drink to them. Verse 3 to 4, we say, They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, that rock with Christ. They had edification from God spiritual food. Now we know that God gave them food throughout the times of wilderness because wilderness did not provide any food. But God gave them what? Manna, right? Is manna physical food? Yeah. Manna is physical food, but it is also spiritual food. Exodus chapter 16 verse 4 says, The Lord God said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what does spiritual food have to do with physical food? Or physical food had to do with spiritual food. The reason is this. You go out and gather manna. How much can you gather? Just for that day, right? Just for that day. You cannot gather more. If you gather more, what happens? It's going to rot. It's going to stink. Some people did not trust in God that God is going to provide every day. So I'm going to get a whole chest full before because we don't know if tomorrow is going to come. And when they did so, Exodus chapter 16, verse 20, they did not listen to Moses. So left some that part of it till the morning, it bread warms and stank. Unusable. God says, you need to trust me. It's physical food, yes, but it's spiritual food. You need to have a relationship with me which you trust me. I'm going to provide for you and care for you. And then there's a water. There's a spiritual rock. They, they drink water from the rock with Christ. In Exodus chapter 16, rather chapter 17, verse 6 through 7, God said this to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Water shall come out of it, and people will drink. The rock is Petra. It's a huge bedrock that followed them. As we see in verse 4, that rock following with Christ. You know what Moses had to do? He had to strike the rock. And the moment you strike the rock, the moment Christ was stricken, what happens? Water, sustenance, spiritual drink came out of the rock. Spiritual drink came out of Christ. People were sustained. It's a spiritual lesson. So they had spiritual lesson. They were even outwardly identifying with God. They're part of God's people by identification. However, that does not mean that they individually have salvation, as we see in verse 5. Nevertheless, with all the benefits God's given to them, all the graces of God, with most of them, God was not pleased. It's an understatement. There's only three people God was pleased. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, all where everyone else were overthrown in the wilderness. Everyone. They were not saved. Even though they had the benefits, it's like you come in the church. Would you be here 
would you be here if the person next to you isn't here? If you had family members telling you to come. You just say, you know what, I'm part of God's people, but you're not. You're not. Because your life has not demonstrated that you are. Your life's full of, as Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, grumbling. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Would that we have died in the wilderness? People had to, literally telling unbelievers to come to church or people who are not believers truly had a heart for it. It's like pulling teeth, right, for the Israelites. It's like pulling teeth. Everything that God told them to do is like pulling teeth. It's like, I already told you this. I already told you this again. I already told you this again. It's like, man, like, don't you have a heart? Don't you have a motivation in and of yourself to follow me? They don't. They don't. But it's not a surprise. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you go to church, just because you identify with the people of God, just because you are baptized, just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you are. You are. You have to assess from your own heart whether you truly have a relationship with God. So verse 6, Paul says, these things are given to us examples so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do you truly desire God in your life? Or do you desire evil? Do you just think about Egypt all the time when I'm preaching? It's like, you know, I wish that I wasn't here. I wish that I could be doing this, right? It's like, your mom's here, and certainly that's why I felt when I was younger, before I was saved. My mom goes to church. You got to go to church. Man, I'm just kind of thinking about it. I just want to go back home and play some video games. I desire evil. But that's not just for kids. I mean, it's of all of us. Even as adults, you don't have true salvation. Why are we here? Do we truly desire God or do we simply are thinking about what we're going to do if we were not here? What can we do if we're not here? We, we don't want to be here. We don't want to follow God. So we need to examine ourselves. That's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Again, we see this command, examining yourselves. To see whether you're in the faith, test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, what? Indeed, you fail to meet the test. Do you really truly have a relationship with God? Just because you belong to a church, just because you're serving at the church, just because you're a leader at the church, doesn't necessarily mean that you truly have a relationship with God. One good example of this is, is Saul. Remember Saul? Saul of the Old Testament. Saul himself. It's debatable whether he's saved or not. And I, I tend to think maybe he wasn't. You know, he was rebuked by David several times. He said all the time, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry. But he goes back to it. He desires evil. But one of the things which I, I felt like was the evidence of the fact that he probably didn't really truly desire God is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 15. During that time when the Amalekites were around and he conquered the Amalekites, and God had commanded for Saul to not to take any spoil. Do not take, do not plunder the Amalekites. Burn it all. Destroy it all. What did Saul do? Saul kept it. He saw the nice cars, right? Nice Lamborghini, you know, sort of, right? It's like, man, like, can't destroy this. It's nice. Houses, different kind of things. Sheep, cows. Kept it. When Samuel came to him, Samuel said to him, what are you doing? You're supposed to destroy everything as God commanded you to do. And Saul had a different idea. He said to Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 15, they brought the oxen to him, to them from Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. What? Your God. 
Wow. He didn't say, my God. He said, your God. Everything he does to appease the person next to him. Again, I asked the question, would you be here if the person next to you isn't here? I'm here to offer sacrifices to what? To your God. I'm here because you are asking me to be here. It's not a characteristic of true believer in Christ. You don't have an inner, motiv- inner motivation in and of ourselves to follow God. You're just doing it because every time someone rebukes you, he says, oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. But it's not because you truly love the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, again, a man without self-reflection said this. This is Saul. He said, I've sinned and yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return to me that I may bow before the Lord. What? Your God. Again, I mean, without self-reflection. Can you not hear what you're saying? Your God. So what we need to do is this, have proper self-reflection. Is everything you do simply because you love God and God alone? See, we're not to doubt our salvation. I'm not saying that. When you're saved, you're saved forever. We see this in Jesus' message when he said, when I rescued you, you're saved. No one can snatch you out of my hand. And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. My Father is more powerful than all. Certainly when you're saved, you're saved. But we're not to be presumptuous in our relationship with God. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, even Peter calls us to be diligent to confirm our salvation. He said, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your, confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure of your salvation. Make certain of your calling and salvation, election. Examine yourselves. What shall you have? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Have these things in your life. If you have these things in your life, then you certainly can be sure of the fact that you are a child of God because you want God. It's not because somebody else wants God. You want God. If you want God, you will live your life for him not because other people watching not because there's a pastor telling you what to do but because you know what god's called you to do and you would do it for him and him alone and what god calls each one of us to do is what god calls jesus to do what god calls apostle paul to do which is to bring people to him for his glory Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. This is our command. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We're to bring people to Jesus. We're to bring people to be discipled within a church so that they may know Jesus. Did you know that there's only one thing that you can do here on earth that you cannot do in heaven? One thing that you could do better on earth that you cannot do in heaven. What is that? This right here. Evangelize. You don't need to evangelize in heaven. The only reason why you're here is so that you may show people who Jesus is. The reason why you're here is not so that you can achieve your degree. The reason why you're here is not so that you can achieve your ambition and be successful in this world. I mean, why? Why would God keep you here so that you could be successful in such a minute way, only to forget about in heaven, knowing that heaven is so much better? 
No, the only reason why you're here is so that in your work, in your place, wherever God places you, you could be salt and light to the people around you. That's why you're here. That's the only reason why any one of us is here. We are. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's our role. So here we're called to take our spiritual lives seriously before God. There are no radical Christians. There are no nominal Christians. They're just Christians. Okay? There are no average Christians. I'm just an average Christian. That's a superb Christian. No, you're just a Christian. We all have the same calling. We're called to live radically for Jesus. In order for us to do so, we must be disciplined. We must have self-assessment, proper self-assessment. Now, life, life is too important of a game not to win. It's too important of a game not to win. Whenever I watch a particular sport, I would see the end of that sport, whether it be basketball, football, and people hold up this trophy. And it's not the emotion that we experience, but they would cry tears of joy. They would talk about the experience and just say, wow, you know, we, we made it. We, we, we work hard for this. And it was something to celebrate. Now, I can't really relate to that myself because I never played sports at that level. I never played sports for, you know, for days and just practices on days and for the whole year just so that I can get to the level of winning a particular game. Never did that. But I can understand the emotion. See, some of us are going to go to heaven. We think, oh, heaven's going to be a place where I live comfortably here on earth. When I get to heaven, I'm just going to put my hands in my pocket and say, oh, that's kind of nice, you know. No! When you get to heaven, this is the emotion that you ought to have. You got to hold that crown, hold that trophy and say to Jesus, thank you. I can't believe this is happening. We made it. We made it. Cry tears of joy. Lots of questions to ask Jesus. Lots of praises, lots of things to thank God for. It's not a just strolling in comfortably. It's a celebration. May everything we do here on earth lead to that point of celebration. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for the, the straightforwardness of this passage in which we get to just very straightforwardly think about it, how it applies to our lives. We pray that you would help us, Lord. To apply it directly in however ways that you want us to apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to take you seriously in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.